Today's sermon passage is Psalms 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with the bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This is God's word. You may be seated. To be in union with God is the fountainhead of all joy and all happiness. That's what, that's what we as Christians believe. That's what the Bible teaches, that to be in relationship with God is to experience joy and happiness. The Psalms are constantly inviting, constantly calling us, constantly wooing us back to this fountain where our deepest longings and our deepest desires, our, our deepest dreams are satisfied. That's what much of the Psalms are about, is calling us back to that fountain, calling us back to Christ, back to relationship with Him. And the reason that is, is because we're so prone to leave, right? The reason that the Psalms and the Scriptures are always calling us to repentance or calling us back into relationship with God is because all of us, are like sheep, and we're prone, to, we're prone to go astray. We're prone to leave the God we love. We're prone to um, be deceived and, and tricked into forfeiting and trading in our pearls, our treasure for garbage. That's, that's all of us, from the pastor to the little child that just came to faith in Christ. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French philosopher, who's a physicist, he's also a writer, he's a genius, an absolute genius. He had known about Christ, he had known about forgiveness intellectually, but it wasn't until the year of 1654 that he actually experienced God's grace. That God actually took his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. I'm going to read what he wrote and and would later sew it in the jacket that he wore. It was found after he died. No one knew until after he died that he had done this. The year of grace, 
1654, Monday the 23rd of November, Feast of Clement, a Pope and a Martyr and others in the Martyrology, from about half past ten until midnight, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God, your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and the one that you sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Let him, I left him, I fled him, renounced him, crucified him. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ, to my director. Eternally in the joy for a day of exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. In his last words at 39, he died at age 39. My God never abandoned me. Some testimony. I was thinking about that renunciation, total and sweet, right? The only way you can say renunciation, total and sweet, is if you think about the treasure hidden in the field. Whatever you're renouncing, whatever you're leaving, whatever you're throwing away has to be of greater worth than that which you're clinging to. Tim Keller says the most happy people in the world are those who are blessed to know that they need to be deeply forgiven. But also they have experienced that forgiveness. I think sometimes we were, Kyle and Rachel and I were actually talking today and you know, sometimes we, we know it, right? We, we, we know God's grace, but we need more experience of God's grace. We don't just need to see it, we need to taste it. Blaise Pascal had known the grace of God, but he finally tasted it as God converted his heart. Psalms 32 is David's song of happiness. It's David's song of exuberant joy and delight that he found in God's pardon, in God's forgiveness. As Ben already shared with us in Psalms 51, you know, what a great fall, adulterer, murderer, like a swimmer set free from his weight, like a runner set free from his burden, David had experienced 
God's forgiveness. David had experienced God's pardon. And that's what this psalm is about. It's a, it's a psalm of repentance. And David starts out and he says, rich, that's what the word bless means, rich, abundantly happy, is the one whose rebellion, whose revolt, whose defiance has been forgiven. That word in the Hebrew, nasa, it basically means to lift and remove. And it's that picture that we see in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read that little allegory of he's starting his journey and he has this big weight upon his back and it's causing him to be bent over and as he begins his journey with Christ, the burden rolls from his shoulders. And that's what's happened here with David is God has lifted this great sin of his. God has lifted it and removed it. And in this passage, God also puts this word in here, kasa, which is a derivative of kafar, which is the day of atonement. And it's this word covered that not only has God lifted David's sin from him, but God has covered his sin. And the reason these two words are sort of put together is it keeps us from any error of thinking that God covers sin like sometimes we cover sin, right? <laughs> you know, how we cover sin is like covering a hole. We just sort of put stuff over the top of it, sort of like Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. That's, that's sort of how we deal with sin sometimes. But God has taken David's sin. Not only has he lifted it from him, but God has paid the price for it. So the payment has been satisfied. It's been covered. David goes on in verse 2 and uses the same word again. Rich, abundantly happy is the man whom God counts no iniquity. There's a problem there, right? What man has no iniquity? <laughs> what person on planet earth has no sin? And it goes on to say, whose spirit there is no deceit, in whose spirit there's no lackness, there's no slack, there's no void. So, right, God either has to cook the books or something has to be done because there's a problem. There are no people, there are no humans who have no iniquity in whom there is no deceit. And that points us to that passage that we read earlier in Romans 4 that says that God does not count our iniquity against us. It's not that we haven't sinned. It's not that we don't have plenty of iniquity. But God doesn't credit that to us. Even though it is ours to pay, He doesn't credit that to us. Instead, He credits that to Christ. And then credits Christ's righteousness to us. You see, there is a big void and a big hole for all of us. This deep, deep chasm of sin and iniquity. And just to remove it, there's still a hole, right? If you just remove the iniquity out of the hole, there's still the hole. And Christ comes and pours His righteousness into us. It's what Romans 3.26, when it says, so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. 
You see, that's the only way God can remain just and the justifier. Isaiah 53, 4-6 captures this better than any scripture in the Bible. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we have been healed. That's good news, isn't it? I can see how David would say twice in this psalm at the beginning, rich, abundantly happy is the one who has experienced God's grace and God's forgiveness. But there's a problem, right? We're all very much like David. This next verse, verse 3, might possibly shed some light on what 1 Corinthians 11.30 and James 5.13 and 16 mean when it talks about our sin, that our sin, that our, our sin against God can even sometimes cause us to be physically ill, physically sick. The New Testament urges us with great caution before we make this sort of connection because we know the disciples tried to make this connection with the blind man when they asked Jesus, hey, who sinned, his parents or him, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. But this was done so that I might show my glory. You see, we have sickness in our world because generally, right, our world is broken. But there are times when Jesus himself in John 5, 14, after he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, he says to him, he says, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. And so David says, when I kept silent, when I kept holding on to my sin like a little child, I don't know if you've ever seen some of these videos online of a of a monkey where they put these nuts in this hole and it's just big enough for him to get his hand in there to get the nuts and, but when he pulls it out he can't get his arm out but he, he won't turn loose. And that's how we are with our sins sometimes is we, we just cling to it. And David says himself that he kept silent. He kept clinging to his sin. He kept holding on. Unwilling to confess his sin. It says that his bones began to waste away. He began to groan all day long. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had a sin that you just, just weren't willing to turn loose and the Lord just pressed and pressed until there's just this almost like this sick weightiness David said before he experienced God's forgiveness and blessing that he was clinging to his sin and it was killing him.
But God loves us, right? He's committed to us. And this is what he says. For day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was almost dried up as by the heat of summer. We know from Hebrews 12 that God disciplines those he loves. Genuine love always desires to root out in oneself and in others all that would do them harm. You know that? It's not the same definition the world sort of gives us, but true love desires for oneself and others that anything that would harm them would be rooted out of their life. That's what true love is, right? Wanting what's best for yourself and for others. David was fortunate to have a friend like Nathan, wasn't he? It's not very many friends like Nathan. You know, Nathan could have got his head chopped off. You know that. Going to the king, confronting him about his sin. We need friends like Nathan, don't we? But I want you to see that we need friends like Nathan not because we need condemnation. We need friends like Nathan because of verses like Jonah 2, 8, which says this, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You know, we're, we're all prone to do that, aren't we? We're all prone to forfeit God's grace to cling and to hang on to our sin. And we need, we need friends like Nathan. We need friends like him to come. You know, as I was thinking and reading this, I was thinking the church and the home are the two safest places to experience true biblical discipline. And the reason is, is because true biblical discipline is meant to bring us back to the relationship. It's meant to reconcile. It's meant to restore. It's meant to bring healing. It's not meant to bring condemnation and guilt and shame. But true discipline, the discipline that the Lord talks about in Hebrews is a discipline that's made to restore us, to bring us back to that fountain where our joy and our delight is found. And so I'd say to the children here, if your kids are here, when your parents discipline you, ever what form of discipline they use, it's because they love you. And God's Word says if your parents don't discipline you, they don't love you. Man, that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But again, the reason that you discipline is to restore and to bring back. And that's God's heart on this. Listen to Hebrews, what it says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when He reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son 
he receives. So we sort of sometimes have a poor view of discipline, and that's because people do abuse discipline, and there's abuse, and there's power, and there's controlling, and there's manipulating. But true biblical discipline is meant to restore and reunite. And that's what God was doing to David. God loved David, and God did not want David to cling to his sin until it destroyed him, and so God's hand was heavy upon David. And finally, in verse 5, David found relief. But he found relief not by making excuses, but acknowledging. He says, My sin, my iniquity, my transgression, my sin. Four times in one verse. It's my, it's my, it was my fault. I did this. You say, liberation and forgiveness starts with honesty and ownership. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? That true freedom and liberation from our sin begins when we're honest and we own it. Not minimizing, not trying to make the label more milder. You know, if you take something really, really dangerous and you put a, something like Sinai and you put vanilla flavoring on it, you make it super dangerous, right? The more milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. So David comes and he's confessing his sin. He's not, he's not minimizing it. He says, God, this is my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. He sings out in honesty about his failures. You know, today many insist that society and religion, that we sort of define right and wrong for ourselves. But you know, if we're all honest, the religious and the unreligious, we all have this feeling that we're just not living up to things. We all have this sort of feeling that we're just not getting it done or we're not doing enough. You just can't shake that. No matter how many accomplishments, no matter how many sermons you preach, good sermons, or no matter how many good things you do at work, it's just not enough. It's just never enough. There's just always got to be another and another. Confession of sin is a vital part of the Christian's life. You know that? It's got to be a vital part of the victorious Christian life, and it's got to be the vital part of the church. Confession of sin is a good thing. That's the reason we do it every Sunday together. In fact, a healthy church, a healthy family, a healthy marriage, a healthy friendship should be filled with confession 
of sin. David finally lost his grip. God pried his hand away. David repented and turned to the Lord. And as we move into verse 6 and 7, what this says is if God has provided the remedy for the greatest problem in history, if God has made provision for this massive sin problem, then certainly God is the one that we need to run to for every problem that we have. Listen at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Isn't it amazing how God is David's hiding place from God? Do you realize that's the uniqueness about Christianity? That God is David's hiding place from God. In the Old Testament, they used to have these places called cities of refuge. And if you killed somebody in the Old Testament, if you killed them unintentionally, maybe it was an accident, but the family didn't think it was an accident, then you had to flee to one of these cities of refuge, and you had to get there before the avenger of blood, one of their relatives, found you. But if he found you before you got there, he could, he could kill you. But if you got there, then you would, they would give you a trial and everything. It was called city of refuge. And God's wrath, because we're all broken and we're all sinners. Isn't it interesting that God's wrath, but yet God is also the city of refuge. That God is the cleft of the rock from God's fury and God's wrath. That the safest place from the wrath of God is the lap of God. You see, when our sin is uncovered and exposed and admitted, it leads to covering. So when we don't cover our sin, but we uncover it before God, He doesn't shame us. You know what He does? He covers it. He covers it with His own blood. You see how that's got to be the motivation for repentance? It's not fear. Yes, fear plays a part of the Christian life in repentance, but the real reason that we ought to flee to God in repentance is God is the city of refuge. God's wrath is coming, but yet God has provided Christ to cover me from His own wrath. It's like a hurricane, right? Where's the safest place from a hurricane? It's in the eye. You know that? You ever been outside? I remember one time a hurricane passed over our house. It wasn't a major one. But we went outside when the eye came over and it was just calm. And the safest place for the sinner is in the lap of the Savior. You see, it's God's kindness that brings about repentance. And it's when we're not seeing God rightly that we run. We, we run 
and we sow the fig leaves. Listen at 2 Samuel 12, 13. This is when David was confronted by Nathan. Listen to what he says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now listen to this. Then Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. I don't know, doesn't that seem too simple? I mean, David did sleep with another man's wife and then purposely had him killed. It was one of his key soldiers. It was the guy that always protects him. You know, one of the key guys, the front line guy. Did that seem too easy? Is it just me? Nathan, you're right. I've sinned. David, you're forgiven. What does that say about Christ's work on the cross? What does that say about the majesty of God's death? The death of His Son. You know that's how God deals with your sin? Do you believe that? Or do you... You know, I, I grew up sort of thinking it was like, come to Christ by faith, and then you've got to keep it, keep, keep it all up. Do you know it's that easy with your sin? Do you, do you realize that? Nathan, you're right. I, I sinned against the Lord. Hey, David, you're forgiven. Wouldn't that change, the, wouldn't that change repentance in our lives if we really believed that? If we really believed that even though God's wrath is coming to devour sin, that God is the city of refuge for us, that all we need to do is just run to Him and get in His lap. You see, it's God's kindness that led David to repentance. And then God goes on in the passage and says that not only does He lead us to repentance, but then it says in verse 8 that He instructs us and He teaches us in the way that we should go. That He counsels us with His eye upon us. And it's that whole picture of the 23rd Psalm. God leading us beside the still waters. So not only does God save us from His wrath, but He instructs us, Hey Ryan, go this way and go that way. And go here and there. And God instructs and shepherds me with his eye upon me. He shepherds us with the scriptures. He shepherds us by his spirit. He shepherds us with his church and his community. You know, the sad thing is verse 9. We'll get to verse 9. Because <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is how we are as Christians almost always. And it's a warning. It's a warning from God. And it says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Isn't that most of us? Like the very safest place that we can be is near God. <laughs> and we're like the horse or the mule. We're just going to listen, listen to this. Some John Piper. It says, Picture God's people as a farm yard of all sorts of animals. 
God cares for his animals and he shows them where they need to go and supplies them a barn for their protection. But there is one beast, animal, that gives God an awful time, namely the mule. He's stupid, he's stubborn, and you can't tell which comes first, the stupidity or the stubbornness. Now, the way God likes to get his animals into the barn for their food and shelter is by teaching them that they all have a personal name and then calling them by name. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. But the mule will not respond to that sort of direction. He's without understanding, so God gets his pickup truck and goes out in the field, puts the bit and bridle in his mouth, hitches it to his truck, and he drags him stiff-legged, snorting all the way back to the barn. That's not the way God wants his animals to come to him for blessing and protection. But the truth is, that's, that's who we are at times, right? <laughs> that's who we all are at times. And God's saying, listen, happy and blessed is he who is forgiven, whose iniquity and transgressions will never be counted against him. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Be not like the horse or the mule. And in closing, as we come to verse 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the ones who trust in God. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I hope as you think about this psalm this week, I hope it changes your perspective on repentance. I hope it helps you understand that repentance is a blessing. Repentance is a blessing from the Lord. And if your sin, if you're never at rest with your sin, and you're always struggling and battling it and hating it, and you can't get rid of it. That's a blessing from the Lord that you even see and recognize it as sin. But don't just stop there. Bring it to Him. Run and get in His lap as fast as you can. And remember, Christ's death on the cross has provided that repentance. And just as quick as David said to Nathan, Nathan, I have sinned. And just as quick as we confess our sins, God says, you're forgiven. Let's be a church of repentance. Let's pray.